Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You've probably heard the story that's been on the news all day today and all day yesterday about Terry Lynn McClintock. She's the woman who lured eight-year-old Tori Stafford to her boyfriend so that um, he could live out his child abduction and rape fantasy. And if that sounds like the upsetting part of it, it is, but you've only heard the beginning of it then. Um, This young girl was driven to a farmer's field where she was repeatedly sexually assaulted as McClintock stood there listening to her beg for help. Uh, This young girl was left alone in a car with McClintock several times where she could have done something to help, but she didn't. Uh, Then later, the young girl, Tori, was beaten to death in a horrifying way that I'm not going to go into the details. The whole thing is just so over the top, disgusting and horrendous and horrifying. It's almost impossible to fully explain it. Well, of course, Terry Lynn McClintock claimed at trial that she was a victim of her boyfriend, much like Carla Homolka once said. However, the court heard that she had once upon a time before this had murder fantasies of her own, that she had once microwaved a dog, uh, that when she was doing time before this, she sent a jailhouse letter saying, quote, I want to, I just want to bounce, get out and go on an effing killing spree. Uh, since going to jail for this, where she got life with no chance of parole for 25 years, she's pleaded guilty to violently assaulting another inmate. And why bring all this up now? Well, if you didn't hear the news already, it's because we've learned that she's been released from maximum security prison where she was supposed to do her life sentence to spend her days at a minimum security Aboriginal healing lodge in Saskatchewan. This is outrageous. This is an unbelievable slap in the face to the family, to uh, people all over this province. And and if you feel as strongly as I do, imagine what the parents of Tory Stafford feel like. It's it's unimaginable. Dr. Scott Kenny is an associate professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland, uh, where, among other things, he has a specialty in victims of crime. He's a board member on the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime. Uh, and he got his doctorate here in Hamilton at McMaster, so he's got that going for him as well. Uh, Scott, thanks for joining me today. Oh, no problem. Uh, sorry for the really long intro you had to sit through there, but I, I had to explain everything to sort of set the table, because this really seems like... It is about the worst case scenario offender. And I'm completely puzzled from a legal, but also a victim perspective, how our system possibly can allow for this. Well, I mean, I, I will say that, first of all, and let me say that I agree with you. It's an absolutely horrifying case. And, and unfortunately, in my time studying these kind of things and uh, you know, being around the, the, the victim community and so on, I've heard and seen uh, a lot of really horrifying stories that uh, that basically just you know makes your skin skin call really. Um, now, how how this could happen? I mean, uh, let's just say that there's a number of things going on here. Um, first of all, uh, I will say that she is sentenced to no chance of parole of 25 years. She she will not be getting out before 25 years. Uh, you know, and one of the good things there is that the uh, the previous government got, did away with the the so-called faint hope right. section 745. So she will be, still be in some kind of institution. Now, uh, what what's going on here is that there have been there has been a move um, in recent years 
to uh, basically put in place uh, programs and services that are more, um, let's just say, sensitive to Aboriginal concerns. And a lot of this has to do with the fact that there's a, there's a large overrepresentation of Aboriginals in the, in the prison system. And so there have been attempts to try to put programs and services and everything in place to be more sensitive to their needs. Now, generally, what will happen if uh, someone has been sentenced uh, to uh, first-degree murder is what, what will happen is over a period of time, they will gradually, but through taking programs and services and that sort of thing, cascade down from maximum security to a lower level of, of security. Uh, this seems a bit quick, for, uh, in my, for my opinion, uh, that, that they're going to be doing something like this, especially in a in a, such a horrific case as this. Right, because uh, I could see what you're saying, and you're, you're, just to jump in for a second, I can see exactly what you're saying if this was a robbery case or this was a, a something else, and you say, yeah, we're going to rehabilitate and we're going to do what you said. We've got too many Indigenous people in prison, so let's try and help them get back into society. But we're talking about up there with the worst possible cases. This just doesn't seem like the kind that should be appropriate for this. Well, I mean, I can't comment on their on their policies because I, at the same time, it does seem rather rather quick for me, uh, you know. And there the, there is a, always a, you know an attempt to try to find something or target some kind of program that's going to in some way reach the person. I'm not saying that this will necessarily happen in this case, but you know they've got a long time to be throwing programs and stuff at her, uh, you know, given the 25 year sentence. Um, I can see how this horrifies the uh, horrifies the parents. Uh, I've met many parents over the years that have uh, experienced these kind of things. And quite frankly, this happened to my own family. So I know I know a little bit about this sort of stuff. Um, and uh, dealing with these uh, these programs, dealing with, with Correctional Services Canada can sometimes be a very, very frustrating experience. And, I, you know, my heart goes out to the father. I they have a, they have a right to be horrified, right? They have a right to oh, be furious by this? Absolutely they do, you know. I mean, I've seen these kind of things in action. I've, you know, I've seen attempts to try to... Um, put people in a particular category to enable them to um, basically uh, rhetorically work their way through the system perhaps quicker than they should. And uh, they get a lot of support for that as well. Uh, Correctional Services Canada as well is, has not been you know, uh, historically very forthcoming with information. Uh, and this is something that should concern people. I mean, victims uh, are, have a lot more access to information than they used to. But uh, all the same, uh, Correctional Services Canada keeps a lot of stuff close to their close to their chest. Why? And they and they don't because they don't want people to know about stuff that they do. They don't you know in a lot of cases they don't want uh, they don't want certain things getting out because they're you know they're concerned it's going to um, cause a lot of political heat on them. And personally, this uh, I can see this case uh, certainly generating a lot of political heat on on the government and certainly on Correctional Services Canada as well. And uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Chatting with Dr. Scott Kenny, who is a board member of the Canadian Resource Centre for Victims of Crime and an associate professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland. Uh, Scott, you're involved, as I say, with this Resource Centre for Victims of Crime. What would this kind of thing, you've, you've experienced this, you said it was in your family, hearing this kind of thing, hearing that a woman who had this involvement in such a horrendous thing, what would this do to a family that was of the victim's oh. family? Well, uh, quite frankly, you know, uh, you know, that's a, that's a huge question. Uh, but I will say that, you know, at first, it's going to basically de- 
devastate who they are. It's going to basically put a big hole in the center of, of their of their self, you know. And they're they're not they're they're basically going to be you know basically a bunch of wreckage around a big hole. That's that's basically what it's going to do them to them personally. Uh, but you know, following a homicide like this, and it you know, and some people pull themselves together better over time. Some people never do. But what but what I'm what the thing is that makes it even worse is that the way that the justice system operates because the justice system in this country you know basically follows the British common law system and what happens is that the victim is not a party to a criminal proceeding it's a matter between the state on the one hand and the accused on the other the victim's only role in that process is to basically call the police in the first place if crimes occurred and to serve as a witness for the crown if called they have no they can't have their own lawyer they haven't got any they've got virtually no rights except for a few very vague things that have been put in legislatively over the number of years. Correctional Services Canada is part of the justice system, which is comprises which comprises the police, the courts, and the correctional system. It was originally designed and set up to deal with offenders and deal with offenders only. Victims concerns about victims have only been something that's been ta- have been tacked on in the last couple of decades, and believe me, they're still playing catch up. Um, and it's this this kind of thing when you're dealing with, with so, uh, a, a system that virtually very it was set up originally not to deal with you hardly at all, and you know and there's very few changes that have been made. What it does it revictimizes the person every single time that they have to go to a hearing, every single time they've got to deal with some aspect of the justice system. So say the say that this horrible horrifying wound that they have is starting that they're starting to fi- finally being able to get their act together after a period of suffering horribly. And then the system just opens the wound all over again, and it does it again and again and again. I can, uh, and it's way too long a discussion right now to get into that British system and whether, and you know, there are parts of the reason why the victim is not part of it that makes sense. There are other parts that it's a little more difficult, but in the sentencing, if nothing else, they are usually invited to come forward and give a victim impact statement. And at that point, they They are are involved. They are now. They are now. And they are... And they didn't always used to be, but you're right. They are now, and that's usually when, uh, I don't know how much it factors into the actual sentencing. In this case, I mean, it's 25 years minimum with life sentence. I mean, there's not there's only so much... There's nothing that really can be done if no. they get first degree. No. You know, but it's a matter of it's a matter of giving the victims a voice. Now, I will say that that procedure is not always not always an enjoyable process for the victim, and for that matter, I would think it would be horrible. I would think it would be horrible every time. Putting it putting it down on paper makes it more real for them again. And the thing is that you know they're not allowed to write what they want to write either. They have to answer certain questions on a, on a bureaucratic form, and if they go outside of those, the, the statement will be disallowed in evidence. It, it does make me wonder if there are not certain cases that rise to a certain level. And again, I'm not, I I don't want to be parsing too much and saying some murders are worse than others. Although I think that probably people would come to that conclusion when you factor in children or sexual crimes or things. But it does seem that when it rises to a certain level, society demands the punitive aspect of this as well as the rehabilitative aspect of this. And this is what seems to get lost in some of these, that the corrections have decided that rehabilitation trumps all and loses sight of the fact that society is so disgusted by this behavior that there must be a punitive factor in this. Well, I mean, the judges are supposed to weigh a number of different uh, considerations when they're when they're uh, 
handing down a sentence, and, and punishment is one of them, rehabilitate, you know, possibility of rehabilitation, and a number of other things come into play. But the thing is, once you get past the judge's sentence and you get into the correctional services system, they have their own system, their own understanding of how to uh, basically weigh these factors and make decisions on how best to uh, rehabilitate the offender and so on and so forth, uh, so such that they can eventually be released. And, uh, and that's the goal, is ultimately to have them released in the long run. Um, and uh, uh, in the, believe me, the, the mindset is extremely different than what the public is. And, uh, you know, it's only by, uh, you know, shining light on these things, which would probably not come to light unless, you know, I think I was reading the story that uh, that you sent me uh, that, you know, the father got some information and he brought he brought this to the public attention. But, if you know, unless this kind of thing is brought to the public's attention, um, basically they operate, you know, um, behind for you know privacy laws and all that sort of thing there needs to be some light shone on some of this stuff it is uh it is truly a horrendous situation and and um we could talk about this for hours but uh we don't have time unfortunately tonight uh dr scott kenny from memorial university really appreciate the time thanks for doing this today oh no problem you're listening to the scott radley show podcast on 900 chml there was a tweet that came out today from the city of hamilton saying, hey, check out this list because we've got a long list of road construction projects that are coming up over the next little while. Make sure you're not going to be affected too much by this. And so I opened it and it is a long list. I was surprised by how many things are suddenly seemingly going on or finishing or about to start. Wentworth Street, Charlton Street, Harrison Road, Nebo Road, Upper Red Hill Valley Parkway, Dartnell Road, Lancaster Road, South Street East in Dundas, Highway 5, Windermere Road, Kensington Avenue, Governor's Road, Highland Road. Uh, that's the list that's out right now. Again, sounds like a very long list and a very unusual time, it seems to me anyway, to be starting all these. Usually we do this in the summer, don't we? Well, Dan McKinnon is the General Manager of Public Works for the City of Hamilton. He joins us now. Dan, how are you today? Good evening, Scott. I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Is my recollection wrong, or is this an unusual time to be starting all these? Don't we usually do these earlier in the summer? Uh, Well, we do like to take advantage of the good weather, and uh, typically we would like to put our uh, the majority of our contracts out in January, so that we've uh, or December, and then we're getting good prices, and then we can start to work uh, early in the spring. But we do put out contracts all year long. Uh, depending on the volume and of work that our design staff can can handle, because uh, most of those uh, projects that you've listed there are actually designed by City Hamilton staff. Okay, so the there were, and, and I th- maybe the last time we had you on, I don't even remember, maybe since then, but one of the last times we had you on was back when the whole debate was going on about Main Street and the potholes and the area rating and all this kind of stuff. And there was all kinds of talk back then about the pothole problems that were going on. It was a bad winter. Does this have anything to do with trying to get ahead of that somehow, that this year to try and anticipate that we're going to have those situations again to get these things done? Uh, we did have, uh, through the, uh, the development of the, the capital budget this year, uh, extra money that was assigned for road reconstruction in Hamilton. So in the entire uh, road program this year, we had about $20 million worth of uh, capital funding that was added to the uh, uh, to the approval this year. Uh, most of that, probably 16, 17 million of that, we are going to be able to deliver this year. So there's there's no question there is extra work that's going to be happening this year as a result of that. Did that come from those discussions? Was that the result of that particularly bad road and that created all the spinoff? 
I think it was a, a bit of uh, both, and both being the particularly tough winter we had on, on a number of our roads throughout the city. And in addition to this, uh, what people may not appreciate is that for a number of years now, Council has approved an extra 0.5% uh, tax increase, which is the uh, the increase that hits your, your property taxes, to go towards uh, capital reinvestment, and generally that is steered towards roads. So this year they actually... Uh, we're able to put a little extra on that as well um, because of the size of the tax increase. It was a pretty low tax increase this year. The, the numbers escaping me, but it was well below 2%. And um, so they, they were able to find some room in there to add to the levy budget to to fund more road and sidewalk reconstruction throughout the city. If I recall correctly, again, uh, last spring when we were doing, or when you guys were doing a lot of these repairs, they were, um, I, th- I think, that was the phrase shave and pave? Is that the right phrase that I'm using? Um, but they were they were those kind of things. Let's fix this thing in a way that we can at least get these roads drivable, right? Yeah, there's, uh, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, we, we want to be able to reconstruct the entire road, go right down to the base, fix the water and the sewer, and then put in a whole new base under the road structure. Uh, the reality is we don't have enough money to do that, and there's certain uh, interventions that you can undertake depending on the age and the condition of the road. So shave and pave is one of those uh, uh, actions that we can take where we mill off an inch or two of the surface as long as the base structure is still in good shape and we can just replace the riding course of the road, uh, and that will extend the life, uh, the useful life of the road for another 10 to 15 years depending on the traffic and the condition of the road. So many of the uh, the jobs that are going to be starting now or that are being under undertaken right now, are they also shave and paves or are they more elaborate, more involved, full reconstructions? Um, I, I don't have the list in front of me, but I, I, uh, I would expect that more of them coming out this time of year would be shave and paves because you just don't have the, uh, the time. Generally speaking, we're trying to get uh, the road closed up before Christmas because uh, t- typically the weather doesn't support that kind of activity in January and February and March. So anything that we'd be putting out now um, would probably be a shave and pave or it could be a two-phase thing where they're going to do part of it this year and then part next year. How long do they last? If you're not doing the full thing and you're doing the shave and pave, how long would that traditionally or typically last for? So if, you're, if you are doing a shave and pave, again, depends on the condition of the road, the volume of traffic, the type of traffic that's on it, if you've got a lot of heavy truck traffic and that kind of thing. But Typically, you're looking to extend the useful life of the road 10 to 15 years when you do a shave and pave. And is that your call? Is that your department's call? I mean, everything has to ultimately go through city council, I guess, for the for the expenses. But how do we decide which of our roads are the ones that get put right to the top of the priority list? Well, that's uh, we, we, what you're talking about is, is asset management. It's the term that we use in our world, and it's it's not just the roads. Whenever we look at a road segment to determine whether or not we're going to reconstruct it. We have to look at the uh, the, the sewer and water uh, infrastructure below it to see where those uh, infrastructures are in their life cycle. And then we have to blend all those together so that we're trying to replace everything at the optimal time. And um, sometimes we might have a road that's failing very badly and the water and sewer infrastructure uh, looks like we can get another 50 years out of it. So in those cases, we will reconstruct the road and leave that infrastructure below. But sometimes in those circumstances, when we do that, a homeowner may have a plug sewer or they may want to update uh, a lead water service or something like that. And then we end up cutting the road afterwards. So that's something that the community will see us do. And and it looks like it's a mistake. But uh, the reality is uh, when you're trying to stretch every dollar that you have, you have to make uh, those trade-offs as you develop your budget. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
Chatting about roads. Hamilton is having a lot of road work being done leading into the winter. Right now, it's either started, it's about to start, it's ongoing. And we're chatting with the head of public works, Dan McKinnon, who is the guy who, um, Dan, you, let me ask you a question. You never get anybody calling you guys up to say, Dan, great job. Do you? People only ever call you when they're complaining about roads or pipes or sewers or something else. Correct. <laughs> well, certainly the, uh, the complaints outnumber the compliments, but you'd probably be surprised. We get a fair number of, um, emails and, uh, tweets from people, uh, complimenting whether it's, it's bus operators, uh, Often we get a lot of people thanking us for uh, the work of our waste collectors. So uh, you know what? We probably get more than you think. But, oh, uh, well, that's a relief. I, that, I was I was absolutely sure you were going to say no. No one ever calls you or writes you except to complain. So that that's good news. Yeah, no, the complaints certainly outnumber the compliments, <laughs> but we do get lots of compliments for sure. Uh, we're talking about roads. We're talking about these repairs generally, because again, we've had this discussion. You've had this discussion on other shows with Scott Thompson, with Bill Kelly. What is the state of Hamilton's roads right now? Are we looking at like we're in really good shape or do you look at this and go, oh man, I, I don't know how we're going to keep up with this over the next few years? Well, uh, again, you're talking about asset management again, and, 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 you know, you have to think about life cycle costing and that kind of thing. So to, to, I guess to put it in perspective, the city of Hamilton has about $20 billion worth of uh, kind of hard infrastructure assets that they own. That's everything from roads, water, uh, our parks, our, our uh, corporate buildings. Um, the road component represents about a quarter of that. So the road network is worth about $5 billion. So the, the easy math would suggest that if, a road, if you can expect a road once you've reconstructed it the last 50 years, um, you should be reinvesting 2%. So you, know, you need to invest in it uh, twice every 100 years. So if, you're up, so if you put 2% into your $5 billion, that represents well over $100 million a year that you should be investing in your road network. We're at about half of that right now. Uh, so that's, that's kind, of, uh, kind of a real simple um, calculation to do. So um, I'm not entirely convinced that we need to be investing $100 million a year, but certainly uh, we should be investing more. And, and I think that's why council has always been supportive, certainly over the last number of budget cycles, to continue to increase our our, uh, our tax rate by 0.5% every year that's dedicated to try and increase the, uh, the funding that goes to roads and, and capital works across the, uh, across all of our assets. So, uh, are we investing enough? No. Um, I think if we, if we were to stop increasing the amount of, uh, funding that went towards, uh, the roads budget, uh, the condition of the roads would continue to decline. So I think we're kind of at a, a place now where, um, you know, we should be putting more in, but, you know, council has a lot of priorities that they're trying to balance. And um, so I'm not sure that we're, uh, we're, we're, we're going to be sustainable anytime soon, but we're, I, I, I'm hoping that we're going to continue in the right direction. Since you don't have $100 million a year then, do you just at this time of year, are you on your hands and knees then praying for a good winter, unlike last year, to hopefully at least slow the deterioration down? Well, good weather certainly helps us with that. And, and, and you know, last year uh, seemed to be a particularly uh, tough year. It's it's never one year, in, in my opinion, anyway, that does this. Um, if you remember back, we had the winters in 2013 and 2014 that were extraordinarily cold. Yep. Uh, so when you get really bad winters like that, um, one of the benefits of a winter like that is it got cold and it stayed cold and it went below zero and it stayed below zero for a long period of time, which is actually better for the for the uh, the our assets than when you have this freeze thaw cycle. And you, you probably hear us talk about that a lot, but when that top layer of the road surface is allowed to thaw during the day 
and the water starts to run, and then at night it freezes again, and then you have the traffic going over it. That's what's really destructive to road surfaces. And, you know, the uh, the area that got a lot of attention last year was Main Street, and um, that, that's one of those uh, road segments that, have, you know, was probably almost 45, 50 years old, and one section that, that hadn't been touched again. So we actually got to the end of its life cycle, which we, where we could have expected it to. We just didn't get to it soon enough. Uh, to rehabilitate it before it had that that failure on uh, like we saw last winter. When I read at the beginning of this segment or last segment the the roads that are now going to be having work done on them, one of the names that I didn't see on the list is Burlington Street. Uh, back in June, once again, the CAA listed it as I think the worst road in Ontario. It's been on that list every year since two thousand nine. Uh, why is Burlington Street such a problem, and why does it never get fixed? So. Uh, the good news is it is getting fixed. It's not on your list because it's already uh, underway. Uh, we are doing a shave and pave there uh, on, a, on a large segment of it. The, the, the limits of the work down there just escape me at the moment. Um, but we are, are uh, undertaking work on the on Burlington Street right now. And, and again, it's just about competition for, uh, for those dollars when you have um, a limited budget and you're trying to you know, optimize it as much as you can. Um, there's always streets that fall below the line, and Burlington Street was one of those streets that uh, had fallen below the line for a number of years. It was in our 10-year capital forecast. We just couldn't get there fast enough, but because of what happened last year and the additional money that council gave us, that was one of the streets that we, uh, we're, we're, uh, we're working on right now. Dan McKinnon, the head of public works for the City of Hamilton. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking the time today. My pleasure, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us move right into our buddy Bubba O'Neill here who joins us on the line. Bubba, thanks for doing this today. How do you do? I do very, very well. I want to play you a sound clip as we get started today because I introduced this. It's from Tiger Woods. Here is what Tiger Woods was asked yesterday or today when someone said, if there was going to be a Mount Rushmore of golf, who should be on it? Here's what he had to say. My all-time Mount Rushmore of golf. Okay, well, probably Sneed. Jones. Thank you. Nicholas. Me. Okay. So, Sam Sneed, Bobby Jones, Jack Nicholas, and me. When you heard that, Bubba, are you thinking to yourself, you know what? Bang on, dead right, that's what he should have said. Or are you thinking, it sounds funny for an athlete when asked about who are the greatest ever to actually answer with his own name. I don't know. What, is there anything wrong with that? Is is he? He has to be on that list. He's two wins away from tying Sam Snead as the most wins in PGA Tour history. I agree with. I so agree he with has that. To say that he has to. Well, just How a can second. He not say that. Just he, a second. The reason I say, and and I want to let you finish answering in just a second. But the the reason that I ask you the question is because without fail, mm-hmm. whenever Wayne Gretzky would have been asked something about greatest players, he never ever would have mentioned his own name. And I, I saw there was a TSN TV did their top 50 players in the NHL, and the, the story was uh, Connor McDavid was asked who is the number one player in hockey right now, and he says Crosby. Okay, what about five years from now? And his answer was, well, I'm not going to say me. Like, there is this there is this thing in sports that basically says, in most sports anyway, don't toot your own horn, don't plug ah, yourself, let someone ah, else that's, do that's, that that's for some, you. You know what, Scott, that's some silly Canadian myth. 
right? And if you don't believe that, and if you don't believe you're the best player, players that don't believe they're the best players aren't ever the best players. And for, for, for Tiger Woods not to name himself as, as any probably, as, as you ask LeBron James, if who's the Mount Rushmore, the best players in NBA history, I would be shocked if he didn't, put him, if he didn't name himself to that list. You think so? I, I, I think I, that he would see. I think that these guys believe they are. I have no doubt that LeBron believes that he's probably the best player in basketball. I, I know Michael Jordan does. Uh, I, so what's I have, wrong with that? It it came across to me as you sound more. I don't know, more gracious somehow. If you were to say it's it's oh, Jones, Sneed, Nicholas, and Palmer, and let other people put you on that list. No, Scott. He was asked a question and he answered the question. He's second on the list in all-time victories to Sam Snead. And really, none of, few of us ever saw Sam Snead. So really, in my opinion, he's the best I've ever seen. He's 14th. He's second on the list in all-time majors won at 14. And, you know, with his win this week, has put himself back into the discussion that maybe he's the favorite to win the Masters next, next year. LeBron James, no different. Um, maybe that's the Canadian way of doing things. Um, and, and, but if you, uh, I'm sure if you ask Sidney Crosby, not on camera, or Connor McDavid, who if they thought they were amongst that Mount Rushmore, especially Sidney Crosby because he's done it over a length of time, and as you said, Connor McDavid sometime maybe when his career is over, you know, like you know, the, near the end of his career, these guys would definitely say that. Well, what's wrong with that? See, I don't think that Connor McDavid or Sidney Crosby would. I don't think Sidney Crosby, for example, if you asked him, would ever say among who's the best player in hockey history or who's the top three. I I would bet all the money I have, Sidney Crosby would never include himself. He'd let others do it. Okay, so what I'll he'd say, believe I, it. I, well, I'll say to that, Scott. There would be statistics. Here's here's why maybe you could actually go. He could actually not say himself because statistically. There's a good chance that if Sidney Crosby were to call it quits next year, or maybe played one more year on top of this, he statistically would not be there. So it, it, it would be very almost correct of him to say that I am not in the top four of all time in terms of, you know, of, of all players, because statistically there's an argument that he would not be there. Tiger Woods is the complete opposite. LeBron James, the complete opposite. That statistically... And champion and championship wise, in a some other some other sense, but in terms of individual accomplishments, because golf is an individual individual sport, he's there. Those guys are there. Is there something? Is it something to do with the sport too? Because I don't. I, I'm. I. I get. I believe you're probably right about LeBron. Uh, I, I and we obviously heard Tiger Woods say this. I don't believe that Wayne Gretzky would ever include himself on that list. That's a hockey thing, perhaps. Uh, I don't know what Tom Brady would say if he was asked that question. I, I really don't have a good sense of whether he would include himself in the best four of all time. Is it a sport thing that you're around different people? It's a different attitude about that sport, and so you would have a different sense of that? I mean, uh, I don't know. There is something to be said probably in the sense that uh, those are team sports. And the success of those individual athletes, including LeBron James, uh, though he has been heads and tails above everyone else on his team sure. for the most part, except for Kyrie Irving, who's the only player that's probably up to his, getting even close to his standards, that those are individual sports. I will turn it into a sense of Serena Williams. I will turn it into another individual sport uh, in, in Roger Federer. I could not believe, I would be stunned 
if you ask those players that question right now of the top four players of all time and that they did not name themselves because they have every right to because statistically they are and in some cases not only statistically are they right there amongst the best of all time they may be the best so i see nothing wrong with actually including yourself on your list and i know you're getting into the humble stuff i mean but come on he has every right to say that I, it, it, and it is it is the humble thing. You're absolutely right. That's what it's all about. I it's the I don't think that. And maybe again, maybe you're right. Maybe it's just Canadian. Maybe it's hockey. I we're not used to hearing athletes when asked a question like that. I don't think actually include themselves in that discussion. Generally, you hear them sort of leave that out, and they nudge, nudge, wink, wink, know what you're thinking, but they let others say that for them. And here's the other part. If you watch the clip, and people can go online, they can see the clip of Tiger Woods answering this question. The other thing about it that I found really interesting, and I don't know if, did you see the video? Did you see the little video clip, or did you just hear it? Okay. Normally, if he was going to say this, you might see him say it with a smile and a little twinkle in his eye, kind of a, oh, and me. He was like dead serious, no smile, no. But he he should be dead serious, because he is. I know he is. he has every right to believe that I belong in that discussion. That, yeah, I, I, you know, if he was some guy that was some wussy golfer that lucked into a whole bunch of stuff, he's put in the hard work to become that guy, to, to have the right to say that I belong in that discussion. And that, it, I mean, again, like he, he's worked tremendously hard. And I mean, and to his career, to the way his career has worked out, he's worked extra hard to come back from incredible injuries. Uh, all and, what you and, say and is had, true. Had he not even won last week? I would be stunned if he didn't, if you asked him, you know, while he was going through hard times, uh, that he should say that he belongs in that discussion. Now, are we saying, is he the best individual? Is he got the best character and all that kind of stuff? That's a whole different discussion. Uh, uh, sure. And, and what you say is 100%, everything you've said about his ability and his place in the standings and, the, and in golf history and everything is true. It makes me think, though, as we've been talking about this, it's made me think 19... 90, 91, I can't remember what year it was, the year that uh, uh, Ricky Henderson set the all-time steals mark, which happened to come, by the way, if people remember, it was hilarious because Ricky Henderson sets the all-time steals mark, and Ricky was a pretty boastful guy. That was eclipsed that night because Nolan Ryan no-hit the Blue Jays for his seventh no-hitter, and all the sports broadcasts and highlights went to Nolan Ryan, which had to drive Ricky Henderson bananas. But anyway... When Ricky Henderson stole that base, they stopped the game, and he says, Lou Brock was great, but tonight I am the greatest of all time. And people were like, ooh, ooh, that just, that doesn't sound good. So what's the difference between that, which he was, he was the greatest base stealer of all time, unquestionably. What's the difference between that answer and Tiger Woods' answer? Or is there one? I don't think there is, Scott. I think he had every, Ricky Henderson had every right. I think... Probably we giggled more at Ricky Henderson because he did have a sort of fun uh, cockiness about himself. But hey, you mean Muhammad Ali called himself the greatest? Uh, is there an argument? I mean, I don't know. I mean, at the time, so there were people that didn't like him being boastful. But then there was a time, eventually, where people liked him being boastful. And that's the odd thing about Muhammad Ali, because for the first half of his career, people didn't like it. People maybe weren't used to it. 
but in an individual sport especially, yep. Yep. I am of the true belief that if you don't think you're the best, you will never be one. And and, and that to me is not the issue because I think that as I say, I believe that every man and woman, I think Serena Williams, Chris Everett, Lloyd, you pick your pick your individual athlete, pick your team athlete. If you're among the elite of the elite, I believe that every single one of those athletes believes deep down, believes I think Wayne Gretzky believes he was the best player of all time. So does Bobby Orr, so does Mario Lemieux, so does Guy Lafleur probably. They all believe they were the best athlete of their time or of all time. They just don't say it. Usually. You know what? You know what, Scott? This is where I kind of disagree with you because when you, I listened to it's. It's funny that you said that because Bobby Orr, you just triggered it for me. That Bobby Orr, I've seen them say this several times. That when the, that greatest of all time discussion comes up, and he generally shies away from it because he says that these guys today would skate circles around me. That these guys are so much better than he was physical-wise uh, in all aspects of the game. And maybe Wayne Gretzky believes the same thing. And I know I have seen him say that, you know, the way I conducted myself on the ice and the way I skated, whatever, wouldn't stand close to, to, uh, to, um, to the way the game is played right now. Whereas in golf and tennis, with the exception of some equipment changes, it's pretty much the same sport. Ooh, well that's that's an interesting one. I mean, golf, and, yes. And, and golf, it's it's tougher. Golf, yes. The, 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 the courses are longer. They're much more challenging. The competition and the difficulty to win each in every week is much tougher because there's a deeper pool of talent, in my opinion, than there was back in the day. Yeah, I would say golf. You're you're right. I would disagree on talent. I think if Bjorn Borg was brought back today in his 23 year old form with the exact physical abilities that he had then and you just gave him a better racket I don't think he competes today. I think that ta- I think the the athleticism the the power everything else has changed so much in the game but that's the case we we have this we have this from era to era you can never really golf may be the exception you can never really compare athletes to athletes it's from hard. era to era because difficult. things change nutrition changes training changes as you say courses change equipment all that kind of stuff I just really, I, th- this one really intrigued me. This one really intrigued me when he gave this answer. Not that he doesn't believe it, not that it's not true, just that uh, most athletes, I think, most athletes would leave that kind of thing for others to say rather than to actually say it out loud. Anyway, uh, there we go. I, 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 I understand what you're saying in, 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 in some ways, but I see nothing wrong with that, and I think that he has worked hard enough and done enough to accomplish in the sport uh, on, on all aspects in terms of marketing the sports, uh, winnings in, in, in major championships, uh, being a contender every week, having 10 years of utter domination like we've never seen before, I would find it hard to believe that it would it, it, that he doesn't have a right to say that uh, and with, without us questioning that. And you know what? If you were to ask that question of a thousand people, they would all include Tiger Woods on the Mount Rushmore of golf. So there's no question about his place there. It's just about him raising it. All right, I've got a few minutes left. I want to get to this other story today because, of course, it was announced today officially John Gibbons not coming back as Blue Jays manager. And what I find really interesting about this today is next year the Blue Jays are going to lose. They're going to lose a lot, uh, uh, barring a miracle of some kind. They're going to be quite young. 
And it seems they're going to need to have a manager who has a great personality, who is pretty easygoing, who is good or in the dressing in the in the clubhouse, uh, a guy who's able to deal with tough spots and not get down and keep an even keel. And I'm thinking to myself, who does that actually sound like? Oh yeah, John Gibbons is who exactly? They're going to be trying to replace John Gibbons basically with a guy who is a lot like John Gibbons. No, not at all. He'll be totally different than John Gibbons. And and here's the reason why, Scott. Not only will the, the manager have the, all the attributes that you just said there, but it, it, I mean, when's the last time you've heard John Gibbons talk about exit velocity? Right? When he we ever talk, he doesn't talk the metrics. When he's leaving sport. the park to go to the bar, <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> he's talking about the sport for he, uh, the sport and players from the eye test. And there's nothing wrong with that, especially from the era that he comes with. But the sport has changed. There was a time where only teams like the Oakland A's relied on metrics to evaluate players and put teams together. That time has changed. And the management that is previously running this team run and choose players on a different uh, criteria than guys like John Gibbons do. That requires a different type of manager. Um, Do I believe John Gibbons can manage young players? Absolutely. But the type of young players, the way you have to treat young players, like we've seen, we've already seen Gibby have blow-ups with guys like Donaldson. They've had a, you know, had a frayed relationship down the stretch. And I think there's another thought that uh, there's going to be so many um, Dominicans and Spanish-speaking uh, players that are going to be on this roster in the, over the next expected two years that you probably need someone to be able to speak Spanish. So as much as I love Gibby, and I think he got a great send-off today, he asked for a victory. The team beat that team, beat you know the world defending World Series champions. I mean, every time he went out and changed a pitcher, people were on their feet. I thought it was a great send-off. The time is now for a change. The one thing I would love to see the Blue Jays do because if Mark Shapiro and uh, Ross Atkins are anything, they like to believe, they like to position themselves as in front of the curve, ahead of the trends, all that kind of stuff. Here's what I'd love to see them do. Because I've always believed, I've always wanted to see a team do this, and no one's ever had the guts to do it. The stats and everything, anybody can do that, as long as you have the person who's running this, the, the computer programs. You can have the bench coach, you can have whoever come up and say, here's the way this thing works, do this. I want to see a team hire a psychiatrist or psychologist as your manager. doesn't matter if they have any background in the sport whatsoever. I want to see them, if this is all about motivating athletes and everything else, let's actually have someone come in and have all the people do all the decisions on the field with other stuff. I want to see a psychologist as your head coach and see how that would work. I don't feel ever. I know you're being sarcastic, but I... Partially, I, but, but not really. But, but the thing is, these teams, and I mean, and this is not even being funny... Most of these teams nowadays have these players have to have sorry have have players that um, have the ability to have someone to speak to um, the psychology part of the game the mental aspect of the game um, that's something that is a you know commonplace now with teams that if you it is required or you need to speak to someone or you know or or players that they feel like maybe are lacking a mental edge. 
that uh, they've, they've been given counseling that way. So to me, that, that, that's happening right now. Well, and, and, and here it is. If, if we are seeing in baseball, and baseball is the one sport that this, I really believe, and I'm not, I'm not being sarcastic. I, I think this would actually be something. Baseball is so much following the computer-generated stats and patterns and tendencies and everything else. A guy hits 211 against the shift and 242 not against the shift, so play the shift. Everything is now not based on a manager's gut or a manager's feeling. It's all based on statistical probabilities. So you literally, if you have someone in the front office who can come up with your book of probabilities... Literally anybody, you could sit in the dugout. I could sit in the dugout and say, okay, this guy, here's what we do. Put the person in charge who can actually be the the amazing motivator, the guy that, uh, Tony Robbins kind of guy who is, the, you know, the person there. I'd love to see what would happen if they would do that. If you had someone who had no background in the game, let's just see if we can psychology these guys to <laughs> victory. Well, they're certainly doing it with guys that maybe And it could be a woman. And it could be a woman. It could be anyone. But there's certainly, the way it's going right now in many sports, and hockey is included in this right now. This is why general managers are axing scouts as as we speak. Because there are people in in these games that we're discussing that are getting signed to contracts without them ever being seen. They do cross-references of statistics and metrics, and say that guy fits what we're looking for, and they're signed to contracts, to minor league contracts, and go, and go from there. You know that guy that in high school, now I know you never did this because you're the nicest human being alive, but that guy in high school that you wedgied because he was a giant nerd, that guy is now running the sports world. <laughs> Those are the people who now are the cool guys who are now running sports. I'm telling you. Uh, I guarantee you that Ross Atkins and Mark Shapiro were wedgied in high school. Are you saying they're not cool? <laughs> well, they are now because they, oh, they run the team. But back in high school, I bet they were the ones who were uh, being pushed into their locker and you know having their books knocked out of their hand. And I'm not, I'm not encouraging that kind of behavior. I'm just saying the world has changed and the guys who were the math nerds are now the ones who are running the show. Well, let that be a lesson to all the youth that are listening to this show. Don't be a bully. Be a math nerd. Be a geek. Uh, one of the names, by the way, as I let you go, one of the names that's coming up is being talked about as a possibility for manager of the Blue Jays. And actually, this would fly in the face of everything we just said, and I would love to see this, but it won't happen, I don't think. John McDonald. Johnny Mack. Yeah, and, and he's got a relationship with, he Mark, does. Shapiro, with Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins. And, uh, that would be interesting because that's not what we're just talking about. That is different from what we're saying. Uh, I don't think so. I think you're, I think you're bang on. I think it's going to be some sort of modern metrics, number crunching, play these stats kind of thing. But boy, Johnny Mack, of all the people I've heard out there so far, he'd be one that would interest me for fun. Uh, he certainly left the, left this, uh, left this area. Everybody loves him. Blue Jay, everyone loved him, you know, from the fans to the, to the, uh, you know, to the players that he played with at the time. But I think with this transitional period of time right now for where the Blue Jays are, they need a different type of guy. I don't think they need a nice guy manager because if that was the case, then you're right. Then John Gibbons would be the guy just to might as well, you know, let him play his one more year out on his contract and see what happens. They're just going to hire the guy who is the head engineer for Apple iPhone making as the, you know, numbers guy and say, you, you're a manager now in baseball. Go to it. But he has to speak Spanish. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. You can catch him on the news doing sports and weather tonight at 11. Bubba, thanks for doing this. Always a pleasure. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.